Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. While many people, somewhat inexplicably, still regard the theory of evolution as an issue of faith, something to believe in or not, like the existence of gremlins or possible dark matter particles, any practicing scientist worth her salt is intent on using it to give us a deeper understanding of the manifold mysteries around us. That was precisely the thinking of UNC Chapel Hill social psychologist Barbara Fredrickson, who years ago asked herself the fairly obvious but shockingly unaddressed question, what's the point, evolutionarily speaking, of positive emotions anyway? And once she found herself going down that road, questions like, how can we better stimulate and harness them, naturally weren't very far behind. When you were young, uh, you were scholarly, but were you interested in psychology per se, or what sorts of things were you interested in? Oh, I, my interest in psychology uh, started in, in high school, um, not for the most um, uh, kind of highbrow reasons. My older sister was a psychology major, and I wanted to be just like her. <laughs> so, um, and so she was a major at university, or was she yeah. in, so there was yeah. an age gap between Yeah, she was six years older. and. Um, uh, in graduate work in psychology, and so um, I took a high school psychology course, which was rare in my era to have a uh, psychology uh, course, and had a great teacher for that, and that kind of struck my interest and so how got me going. Describe the, the greatness of the teacher. Great in which in which particular? Way? Oh, we what did a lot of um, kind of hands-on experimentation. We had our own Skinner box and trained our own. Really? Trained our own. Um, uh, rats. We um, conducted social psychological experiments. And How many field. of you were there? Uh-huh. There were probably about 20 of us in the class. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it wasn't a class that, yeah, it was a small class, very hands-on, great instructor. Um, so. And, and were you ever tempted, so presumably then you went off and, and to undergraduate with yeah. the goal in mind you were going to study psychology? I did, although uh, I had a good friend who was just a couple years ahead of me who um, it was a psychology major, and it just totally wasn't for him. And he's like, "Oh, do anything but be a psychology major." And so I really tested myself and took, you know, chemistry, economics, and you know, I did well in those classes. But it, I just was so drawn so to psychology. So this was because of this. So you were you were really influenced by this this person. Yeah, so, yeah. But then, but then you but came, then back. I came not, back. Not enough. <laughs> I I was influenced enough to really test whether psychology was for me, and I just was like, "Those are the classes I want to take." You know, there's no. There was no question that those are the ideas I wanted to be thinking about by that point. Well, it's probably a good thing, right? Yeah. To, to, have, to have gone off and, and had a sense of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you started studying psychology, did you have uh, a particular orientation in mind? Were you thinking about abnormal psychology or social yeah. psychology? Or did, did you, how did that develop? Well, I went to Carleton College, very small college, mm-hmm. and at the time... the psych- in Minnesota. In, in Minnesota, Northfield. Right. Right. And... Um, there were, I don't know, four faculty members <laughs> in psychology. Oh, really? So all of 
social personality clinical psychology was represented by one faculty member, um, uh, Neil Lutsky, who is, was my mentor then, and actually we still stay connected. Um, anytime in, in Northfield, we'll have dinner together. Um, and uh, so those are the courses that I just really liked. So within that kind of side of psychology, I knew I wanted to do something in that area. Right. Um, and uh, really boiled down to social psychology. I, I um, knew I wasn't interested in the, the clinical side of clinical psychology, um, not because I don't, it's not that I don't care about people's suffering and outcomes, but I, I realized I was just much more drawn intellectually to Volta. How does this work? Not what can I do to make it better? I mean, the way I, the way I think is all about mechanisms and how and how to unpack why you know, humans are the way they are. And so I realized my questions were really basic science questions. Would you have, do you think, gone through the same sort of trajectory um, had you been doing that now? I mean, now that there is so much more emphasis placed on cognitive science and neuroscience yeah. and all the rest of that, would right. you, if you could imagine yourself the age of your children right, right. now, would, right. you, would you follow roughly the same track that you did or would it, do you think it would be a somewhat different track? Oh, that's a great question. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I think that I probably would have started in with much more of a biological focus, which I've you know developed over the years and starting as a as a postdoc doing psychophysiology, but um, I feel like psychology as a field is uh, integrating uh, so rapidly with the biological approaches that having that as a strength early on would be be really cool. Right. Yeah. Whether it's neuroscience or immunology or you know, so I'm not. Uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, oh, if I would start over, I'd do neuroscience. And I think the brain is fascinating, but I think in all of our love of neuroscience, we're kind of forgetting about the body. Right. And the body is rather super, significant. Rather significant <laughs> and is you know, kind of part of the brain. <laughs> part of our wisdom is in the body. And, right. you know, so it's, it's exciting for me to be able to be, you know, revealing some of that. Right. So this whole notion of an integrated system. Right. And is that something that you remember becoming consciously aware of at a particular time that you started thinking at some point in your academic career, um, hey, this, this is all kind of together, the brain and the body and right. influencing one another. Right. Did, did you, do you remember having any particular epiphany, a road to Damascus yeah. about yeah. any of this yeah. sort of thing? You know, um, uh, social psychology as a field has, has um, gone through many different phases of kind of self-concern about relevance. I mean, I think social psychologists think what they do is fascinating and interesting sure. always, but, you know, trying to find the, the ways to make it relevant and um, connecting more to health and to illness and biology is, you know, seemed when I was in graduate school super important. And so that's why I sought out the postdoc that I did that allowed me to get training in psychophysiology to begin to make that clear bridge to health. Right. I, I did a bad job actually in charting your career because I left you at, at I left you in Minnesota. Oh yeah. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then so so after you had this uh, this formative experience there yeah. with this presumably intimate group of people and right. four faculty members and right. so forth, right. um, you decided to go to graduate school. Right. Um, and so what was motivating that particular decision in terms of area of research and where you wanted right. to go and what you wanted right. to study? Well, I had a, a good opportunity when I was, a, as an undergraduate, to do research with my mentor, Neil Lutsky, 
and his area at the time was in um, uh, kind of that bridge between social and personality psychology, um, how we perceive other people's character and, and personality traits. And so I had worked a lot on that and that at the time I thought that was like, oh, that's what I want to do. And so I applied to schools where there were faculty that did that kind of work and ended up at Stanford um, and uh, ended up doing totally different kinds of work, <laughs> mm. you know, just uh, by, you know, how your interests change and all. But that's how I uh, first, you know, decided that I wanted to be a social psychologist. Right. Um, I did have a, a glimmer of thinking, maybe I'll be an organizational psychologist, or at the time it was industrial organizational psychology. But in looking, doing an independent study on that work, I re it seemed like at the time, and I think this is fair to say of, you know, 30 years ago, is that that area of psychology was kind of lagging behind social psychology. It was kind of taking what was known in social psychology and, and applying it. And I thought, well, may as well get training in social psychology so I can be ahead of the curve. Right. When, so I'm going to say something now which is potentially embarrassing. When, when I was um, younger um, and when I was an undergraduate, mm -hmm. and I mentioned that I studied uh, natural sciences, I studied physics, there, there was this attitude that the people who study psychology study psychology because they all have their own problems that they're yeah. trying to solve. This was yeah. the sort of the stereotype. Um, what, what you were describing to me uh, is, seems obviously motivated in a very, very different direction. It's, right. not, it's not as if you're, you're, you're obsessed with yourself or integrating right. yourself or how, how am I working or, right, or right. I'm confused and I, I need yeah, to yeah. get some identification. It's really right. very, very outward and, and in many ways very positive yeah. at some level. You're, you're not necessarily looking at the abnormal aspect right. of the human condition. You're looking at the, just the human condition writ, right. writ large, not singling right. out any one particular aspect right. of that. So my first question is, is that true? And by nodding your head, I'm getting the yeah. sense that it probably was. And the second is, how, how common is, is that, you think? Well, you know, I think my first love was uh, in love, you know, being in love with science, you know, that you can answer questions that are, and just the whole process of kind of working on that, that uh, edge of, oh, we don't know this. Well, let's design a study. Let's figure this out. It's just, right. it's fascinating. You know, it's, it's um, you know, one thing to be consuming, you know, the results of science and a totally different game to be, you know, producing it. And I just found that intellectually gratifying. Um, you know, my interest in emotions, um, uh, which grew, you know, in graduate school and my postdoc, uh, you know, in hindsight, I think kind of fits some of the, because um, people have asked me, oh, you study positive emotions, positive psychology, is this because you had this extraordinarily happy childhood and, <laughs> and you know, everybody was bubbly and upbeat the whole time? And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> you, know, um, uh, you know, I grew up in, a, in Minnesota in a very stoic um, Nordic household. I mean, there was no discussion of emotions, uh, no very little expression of emotions. And so, and actually in Psychology at the time, there was very little study of emotions either. I mean, it was just n not an, a target of scholarly work in the 20th century until the late 80s. I mean, it had been sort of part of psychology at the initial get-go 100 years earlier with William James. Behaviorism kind of shut the door on, on internal experiences as being a um, legitimate uh, focus of study. So it was considered just irrelevant? Just it's just lights on the machine, just, poof, you know, uh, inconsequential. 
And so um, as psychology as a science was kind of waking up to, you know, emotions can be studied, I, I came across and I thought, oh, yeah, what is this emotion stuff? Because <laughs> you know, it just wasn't part of uh, the lexicon of, you know, uh, conversations in our family, for example, in the same way that, boy, my kids hear a lot about emotions. <laughs> they're they're kind of like, yeah, yeah, mom, that's enough. <laughs> but, you know, I think that, um, you know, our, our culture has changed so much in terms of, you know, we think of parents' job as emotion coaching or emotion socialization. That's, you know, that wasn't even on the radar and my right. parents were at that. So when you were at Stanford, what, what did you, what was your PhD thesis about? And then tell me about how you moved from there to do yeah. the postdoc that, yeah. that you were talking about before I interrupted you. Yeah. Well, my, um, interestingly, my, my PhD thesis was uh, centered on an idea that came out of an undergraduate class I had, again, with Neil Lutsky. You know, it's like, hmm. so, so much of what I've done is, you know, traces back to this um, early mentor, you know, I've, my mentors have been really influential along the way. But anyway, it was on the psychology of endings. And um, at first, you know, I see, you know, showing some surprise. <laughs> so, you know, people are like, endings? Well, what? Trying, why? Trying, why? Trying why to figure it endings? out, that's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why, why, what's the psychology of endings? You know, and um, there's very little work on that, but it's just sort of how, uh, the endings of situations, the endings of relationships, the endings of life, what do they have in common and what about, what about them matters. And so I was drawing a parallel. I was working also with Laura Carstensen, and, who mm -hmm. works in social gerontology. And, um, and central to her work is that uh, late in life, people start to prioritize emotions in, in their social interactions. Mm -hmm. And I was noticing that, well, you know, that happens at other endings, too. Like when people are graduating from college. Right. You know, they don't want to, you know, make a new friend. They want to spend time with someone they know well. They want to, you know, enrich a relationship. Right, so they're that investing it, in that relationship yeah. rather than a relationship that they couldn't possibly give sufficient exactly. time to, Exactly, exactly. So that was my dissertation, was how um, any social ending creates the same kind of social behavior that you see in late life. And that debunked um, some early theories in social gerontology, which were um, s centered on how um, older people are withdrawing from the social world and so preparation for death. how unique their experience is, yeah, that you yeah. couldn't point to any precedence before. Exactly, exactly. And so um, Laura Carstensen's um, contributions to the field are really to say that's not the case. And my dissertation was a piece of, of the first evidence to show that endings do this. It's nothing about age. Uh, it's, and it's just they tend to co coincide with age. Right. So, um, and that led to some work that I did with Danny Kahneman on uh, what we call the peak end rule, which is basically when people think back about uh, past emotional experience um, and they sum it up, they refer to its peak emotional intensity and how it ended. Those two moments, those two snapshots, end up characterizing it, and they neglect the the duration of the event or you know some other aspects of it. And, and are, is that even true? I mean, do they? If if I could imagine that if they're if they're putting it into some template, some yeah. framework, where they're looking at the peak and the and the and the ending of it. Um, they may be misremembering to some yes, extent. Yes, like exactly. And we've done studies to show that that um, that. Uh, even, even if something is objectively, say, more pain overall, 
if it has an improved ending, mm. then you think of it as, um, uh, well, I'm more willing to repeat that than the one that was shorter that had a bad ending. So people do make um, cognitive errors because they extract the, the peak in the end. Do they learn, by the way? I mean, do they, you could imagine that you've had N different endings, or let's say yeah. four different endings or something, so about yeah. the fifth time, are you any better at the, yeah. by some objective procedure yeah. at the ending Gr process? Great question. I don't know that. Uh, so I don't, we, we didn't do the studies of whether we people learn. We just sure. um, uh, were able to document that this is a reliable, reliable effect. And that's what got me interested in emotion, is, right. is you know, kind of seeing these emotional hotspots, these, you know, kind of the, the ways our memory tracks emotion. That's what first got me interested in doing a, a postdoc in, in emotions. Right. And, and were you surprised by the results that you were starting to find? With the endings? Yeah. No, no, no. With oh. the, with the, during your postdoc, I suppose, uh, with memories and emotions and so yeah. forth. Are you, are you, are you uh, is your research unveiling things that you hadn't thought yeah. of necessarily before, or are you more or less saying, yeah, that's kind of what Well, I what, it's, what did surprise me and what changes how we collect people's um, self-report um, uh, of their emotional experiences now uh, to this day is that we, we tend to do a lot of studies where we ask people at the end of the day um, about their emotions of the day. And because of that early work, we don't say, okay, what's all the gratitude you felt today? <laughs> we ask, what was the, what was the um, most intense, how intense was the most intense moment of gratitude? Knowing that people register those peaks and they're not very good at remembering, you know, or integrating over integrating, the whole. Integrating, yeah, I was yeah. going to say, yeah. So it's so, like just a spike. That they're, yeah, that they're yeah. so we, we try to get a, a representative snapshot of what people's emotions were like by just grabbing those peaks. Because we know those are a little more are more reliably recalled. Right. So, so I, I want to talk a little bit about um, positive emotions, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I guess an obvious question to set it up that that people had been thinking about at the time mm -hmm. was contrasting it with negative emotions right. and and saying. Uh, we have some sense of where the negative emotions come right. from, from an right. evolutionary perspective. Right. Right? You see the woolly mammoth coming towards you, right. you're fearful, and you, right. something happens to right. you. Um, you may distrust people because you may be skeptical, you may get angry with people, which has some physiological effect. Right. And, and um, it's, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, obviously, but it's not difficult to right. understand that these things are tied to our survival. survival. Yep. Um, but on the positive side, it's a lot harder to exactly. imagine where, exactly. how that might have actually That was come. the puzzle that drew me in, <laughs> totally, was, you know, uh, we have these templates for understanding the value or the evolutionary value of emotions. And as, a, as the um, science of emotions be began to develop, it was kind of a, a cookie-cutter template used for all um, emotions, which was emotions promote um, specific action tendencies, and those are the action tendencies that had helped our ancestors um, uh, survive uh, threats to life and limb. And so um, if you use that for positive emotion, or for, for understanding the evolutionary value of emotion, it's, it's easy to just leave the positive emotions out. And so there were actual, there were theories of emotion that were saying, this is what emo how emotions evolved that didn't even mention positive emotions as among the emotions, <laughs> which I just 
you know, kind of find amusing because they're, they exist. They certainly and, do. And they're and a human universal. And very valuable as Yes, well. <laughs> exactly. And so <laughs> what, what I did in um, my early work is to point out that the, we can't use the same theoretical mold to understand the value of positive emotions. And in particular, um, the time scale is different. Whereas the, um, the, the adaptive value of a negative emotion is during the moment of threat. That it 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 calls you know it prepares you to do actions that had been you know advantageous for our ancestors. So an immediate response, reactive. Yes. In a way. Yeah, like that immediate um, uh, behavioral and, and and internal state that goes with that emotion My is adaptive. Mammoth. Yeah, Wooly exactly. Is around the corner. Yeah. So, but with positive emotions, there's no clear action tendency that's going to save your skin right at that moment because there is no threat. Most often, there is no threat. Some positive emotions occur, you know, in the, in, with the backdrop of threat. And so I argued that, well, it, you know, they have a, a clear psychology that they broaden people's mindsets and that that's beneficial, not in that moment, but if you've had more of those moments, you've accrued more resources. That's that those broadened uh, awareness moments help you discover and build new resources that end up kind of um, filling out your tool, your survival toolkit, <laughs> so that... So it's an investment. It's an sorts. investment. It's an investment in the future. And so, but if we look only for the uh, evolutionary advantage in the moment that you experience it, you won't see it. So to be able to see the evolutionary advantage of uh, positive emotions, you need to take that longer view, kind of a, a, right. yeah, a developmental view. You know what this, this also um, reminds me of? Um, is, is a query that some evolutionary biologists will say um, mothers spend this enormous amount of time with their newborns. Yeah. I mean, this is not, this is a huge investment of time right. and energy and resources, right. and it certainly doesn't benefit anybody right. in the short term. I mean, it's, right. um, it's a huge effort. So it seems, it seems analogous to the extent that there's an awful lot of investment which is actually being made, which isn't immediately... Uh, available, well, you don't see any immediate yeah. returns from yep. it whatsoever. Yep. Um, I mean, in the sake of, of caring for caring for one's right. young, you, you might say you're genetically disposed to doing so, but that's really begging the question. Yeah, it seems like you're just stating, yeah. stating that. Um, so it seems like that's another example. There are yeah. all these investments that, yeah. that, that humans tend to make or the species right. tends to make. Yeah. Do you see that, that this um, these positive emotions actually existing in other species as well? Do you see this as a, as a uniquely human aspect or yeah. is this is this Well, certainly species? other positive emotions I think can be um, seen in um, uh, mammals at least in terms of uh, play. Um, and there's even some evidence that there are vocalizations in rats that seem to oh, really? be like laughter, <laughs> you know, that they happen, you know, with tickling and when there's kind of joviality or whatever. Right. They're actually kind of ultra high frequency, not audible to the human ear, but with the right recording devices. You know, so there's a you know whole research programs that try to uh, um, uh, document that this actually seems like a positive emotion expression in animals. Um, what's uh, so? Yeah, and there's play, there's certainly play that goes on in in um, other mammals too that ends up looking like an investment in future behavior. So um, there's certain kinds of um, uh, maneuvers that uh, 
you know, juveniles of a certain um, primate species will do on, only in play, which is, uh, I think it's called jinking or something, where they kind of th catapult themselves into a, like a flexible branch and then go off in another direction. It's kind of like, you know, run headlong this way and then you go that way. Cool. And it's, um, yeah, it's cool, but it also, as adults, they never do that unless it's a survival maneuver. Oh, They're so trying it's to training escape them, it. it's prepping yeah. them for that eventuality. Exactly. So it's something that's kind of part of play, and then it becomes useful at a later point. So it, this, is a, um, this is a case, this is what I was really going for, as I'm sure you, you, you understood. I, I'm looking for ways in which you can test is maybe too strong, but, but hold out examples of, yeah. of this theoretical framework to other cases, to other things. And so right. if you can say, this same sort of investment and, and, and uh, broadening can yeah. apply not only to humans, but it yeah. actually can apply in different cases to, to other species. Well, that's, right. that's some indication that you're on the right track. So. Right, yeah, that's where I started in, with this theory, is looking at some of the animal literature at the time. Um, the other thing that kind of has that feature of uh, neat design, the, uh, the way that um, you know, evolutionary principles build on, is that you know, there are certainly other ways to develop your resources and skills to be better equipped to deal with adversity in the future. I mean, um, as humans, we've invented education <laughs> for, for, for that. Uh, but uh, positive emotions kind of assure that you develop in that way just because it's rewarding. <laughs> because pleasant experiences themselves draw you to repeat that pleasant experience. So it kinda, it's kind of like this um, uh, sugar coating that brings people back to the educational moment. <laughs> you know, so right. you play because it's fun, and in playing you learn things. So uh, there's, there's ways in which that, you know, the hedonically positive aspect of positive emotions um, keeps bringing us back. Now, it certainly gets humans into trouble as well. I mean, obviously, drugs of addiction, you know, sure. gambling addiction, all, all those other things are kind of based on kind of an exploitation of the positive emotion system. But in, in terms of, you know, how it developed for our... Yeah, you're not responsible for that. You're responsible for giving me an evolutionary framework that exactly. makes sense. I mean, exactly. you, you can't stop people from going to Vegas all the time. <laughs> exactly. It's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the response to this when you, when you were developing? Was, was there immediate, yes, Barbara's on the right track, or we've, uh, this is irrelevant, or we've yeah. heard all this before? Or, oh, there or? certainly wasn't a, we've heard all this before, because there was very little work on positive emotions. I think there was a lot of interest. I mean, one of my senior colleagues was like, gosh, I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> you know, which I, I took as the, the, you know, the greatest compliment. Sure, and, that's what you want. Um, and it, uh, it captured a lot of interest in this new area called positive psychology, which came along afterwards. Um, and, you know, helped people make sense of, oh yeah, this positive stuff is important. So, so, so what, just hold on one sec. So positive psychology is um, is necessarily linked to positive emotions, or is it in contradistinction to abnormal psychology? Or how, how is positive psychology actually defined? What is that? Yeah, it's a little more in contrast to clinical psychology. It's like we've used the the great scientific tools of our field to understand human misery. Let's also use those same tools to understand human flourishing, or you know, um, kind of functioning at a really high level. Okay. And um, positive emotions are one topic under the umbrella so of positive psychology. Okay. And, but, um, you know, the way I see it, you know, I see everything through the lens of emotions now after all this time, is that that's the fuel. It's kind of like the, 
or the engine mm -hmm. that drives flourishing and well-being. You know, um, it's it's uh, by by evolutionary design. Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were talking about responses and and oh yeah, uh, one person. Um, I think that you know, early in my career, I feel like you know, uh, people were super excited by the theoretical ideas. You know, I published things were like, hey, that's really cool, love that. Um, and so for the first, I'd say, 15 years, you know, I was just like, a round of applause, yeah, that's doing great. You know, and as, as the field has grown and positive psychology grabs a lot more attention, there's like, you know, uh, people very cautious and wanting to make sure everything that's said is right. So I have my own merry band of detractors now. Well, that sounds like um, you're the victim of your own success to some extent. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. that's, I mean, presumably that's what one wants when, if, if one is developing a key insight, which gives rise to a whole different way of looking at yeah, things and other exactly. people rush in, exactly. you're, you're going to have all sorts of subtleties emerging and people are going to be, they, once they've accepted the insight, of course, they're going to be demanding more and more and right. more and right. be arguing over yeah. smaller and smaller details to some yeah. extent, and that's yeah. and as so, it should be. Yeah, and so it's just par for the course at this stage. So, yeah. so let's talk about, um, so you mentioned the whole uh, broaden and build mm -hmm. uh, aspect. Um, so this, this notion, as I understand it, so tell me if I'm wrong, this, this idea that, you, um, that positive emotions form, uh, are, are essential to our evolutionary uh, growth insofar as they enable us to have a framework for doing all sorts of uh, future activities mm -hmm. That are fundamental to our flourishing, or fundamental to mm -hmm. our survival, fundamental mm -hmm. to all sorts of things, mm -hmm. um, and that without those, I don't have any examples handy because it's not my field. But I'm get, I, I could say something like, without the ability to socialize, without the ability yeah. to get along, we wouldn't have developed language, society, right. all, all these other things that yeah. are that are often yeah. good for us yeah. to, to have done. We'd just be running away from. I'm not even sure woolly mammoths actually existed when man yeah. existed, but 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 yeah. I'm not an evolution, but, but a big thing that we were running yeah. away from. We right. just be, we some just kind be of predator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just be doing that. Um, so so this notion of looking at positive emotions as as you said the engine of uh -huh. of this development mm -hmm. that enables us to flourish is a is a pretty strong insight to me and that's my understanding of what that's all about yes. or am I missing yeah. something? Yep, that's the, broad, the the whole purpose of the broad and build theory is to explain kind of the form and the function of positive emotions is, is you know, how, what's their psychological shape and what value did that have? Right. Yeah. And, and so then there's this question of, okay, but uh, positive emotions have a value, mm -hmm. negative emotions have a value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, do we have any um, how can we compare the two of them, right. or is there some uh, right. is there some meta theory that says they should all be in this sort of balance or that sort of balance yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah. Well, one thing that we know um, very clearly from uh, just a very solid foundation of work is that there's a very strong negativity bias. That you know, measure for measure, negative is uh, stronger than positive in in terms of the emotions. So it's in. In a way, the negative emotions scream out at us, and the positive emotions kind of whisper. Um, that um, and that makes really good sense from an evolutionary perspective. In that, if negative emotions are really about surviving the moment, and positive emotions are taking advantage of an opportunity so that you might grow and become a better person in the future, well, you know, one should trump, trump the other. Negative emotions should trump. If if we're here having this great conversation and that woolly mammoth comes right. through the, the window, you know, we should stop. Yeah. <laughs> we will. <laughs> exactly. So in that sense, negative survival 
trumps investment in the future. Right. And that is the logic behind the negativity bias. Now, um, and, and for that reason, there's, um, uh, that's the logic of suggesting that um, in order to flourish and really be at um, uh, you know, higher levels of mental well-being, that uh, a ratio of positive to negative emotions needs to be higher than one to one because one to one, um, the negative emotions will just you know, railroad over the positive emotions. And so um, there's research to suggest that the typical ratio across all, all people is about two to one, mm -hmm. that people tend to have you know, twice as many positive emotions as negative emotions. Now our attention is always drawn to negative emotions, but in terms of day, day in and day out, people who are reasonably healthy are about two to one. People who are clinically depressed um, dealing with anxiety disorders tend to be one-to-one -one or lower. Um, okay, so this is uh, just descriptive research. And what we found is that people who are flourishing, doing really well in life, tend to have ratios three-to-one, four-to-one, five-to-one. You know, so they're, they're appreciably above that two-to-one norm. Right. Um, and, the, and that seems to be characteristic of people who are doing really well in life. So that, that leads uh, directly to a question of how might we, on an individual basis, actually be able to improve that or in increase, yeah. increase that. But I'm going to defer that question for a moment. Okay. And I'm, and I'm going to move towards um, a, a more detailed explanation of what we're actually measuring in the scientific okay. aspect of this. Uh -huh. Because it's, uh, I can see someone uh, who hasn't read any of your books. Uh -huh. Um, aren't too many of those people, but I'm sure there oh. are a couple of them. <laughs> There's millions. <laughs> um, who might say, uh, well, this is all very well and good, but, you know, negative, positive. Okay, I can see that it, there's some broad-based way that you can justify on an evolutionary yeah. basis um, the, the fact that we have positive emotions mm -hmm. and that we like to have positive emotions. Okay, fair enough. But what can you really do with this? Can you actually measure anything? Can yeah. you measure how does this tie into the physiological aspects that you were right. talking about before in terms of the integrated system of the entire right. body? What, right. what, what, can you do anything in a lab? Can you show me anything right. other than just wave your hands around? Sure. So, so. We, um, uh, there's all kinds of ways to measure emotions. I mean, the, the key is to recognize that emotions are a complex system that's both mind and body at once. And um, that uh, we can infer the presence of an emotion by kind of triangulating on it from a number of perspectives. People's self-reports about what they're experiencing are a vital piece of that, but just one piece. You know, we often look at facial expressions. We'll often get observer reports. We'll often measure, you know, physiological responses in terms of cardiovascular change or um, changes in biochemistry and so on. Um, when we're doing laboratory studies, uh, we, there are typical ways that are, are used to reliably induce positive emotions in the laboratory. And we tend to work with mild positive emotions, which I actually think is a strength of the work. Um, it's hard to bring the really extreme positive emotions like at the birth of a child or winning a lot. You're not bringing those events into the laboratory. If you and, could do that, by the way, I think it'd be a lot of money for you. Right? Yeah. I mean, if you can manufacture those things. The really intense ones. But you know what? The research shows that uh, what matters about positive emotion experience is the frequency, not the intensity. So intensity, you know, that's great for, you know, highs every once in a while, but in your day in and day out frequency of mild positive emotions is far more important than having a few really intense 
uh, and when you say important, you mean important? Important uh, in terms of well-being and, and flourishing and um, uh, maintaining mental health. Right. So, um, so we bring those mild positive emotions into the lab in very, you know, beguilingly simple ways. You know, showing people short video clips of baby animals or um, uh, beautiful nature scenes or giving people an unexpected gift, usually very small, like a, you know, bag of candy. You know, we don't let them eat it, so we know it's not a sugar high that's <laughs> affecting it. They they take it as a as a gift. You know, as okay. it's just sort of a, an unexpected gift. Because if you gave me candy and then wouldn't let me eat it, my no, no, positive no. emotion would turn yeah, around. No, you quickly. get to eat it. You get to eat it later. <laughs> okay. So you're just not eating it during the during the you know experimental testing. Um, so the unexpected gift, the video clip, sometimes writing about a positive memory, or you know, the, think of a joyful time and write write a story about that. Uh, um, all, all those different techniques are used, and um, uh, and then we measure sort of what happens to the the scope of people's thinking right after that. So the, there's some aspects of the broaden and build theory that you can test in a, in the laboratory, and those are the things that have to do with how does it change the way the brain works in that moment? How does it change what happens um, in terms of physiology, uh, in terms of undoing negative emotional um, agitation? Uh, other aspects of the theory you can't test in the laboratory by uh, kind of by definition this build effect this incremental right. effect because you don't have enough time, time to wait yeah yeah and so there we um, uh, measure people's self-reports at the end of the day um, uh, repeatedly over weeks and weeks and so weeks. you have these longitudinal studies we have longitudinal so. studies where people just get used to every night reporting in what was the greatest amount of you know 20 different emotions that they experienced the greatest amount of anger and irritation annoyance the greatest amount of you know gratitude and uh, appreciation so um, uh, people kind of get used to uh, reviewing their day in that way we find that just simply doing that doesn't Change people's emotions over time. Hmm, that's um, good Yeah, um, but it's it's a it's a good benchmark. And then um, by getting you know we're not asking people what a lot of other researchers might do is say, well, tell me about your emotions in general. Think back to the last month. What do you usually feel? I think people can't answer that question. They just make things up, or they make things up that are broadly consistent with their views of their own personality. Um, you get much more variability if you ask people closer to the size and shape of an emotion, which is very short-lived. So, you know, we just try to get them right, right out at the end of the day. Other people use what's called ecological momentary assessment of, you know, a beeper study where you text somebody and say, what are you feeling right now? But, you know, that there's pros and cons to either approach. Um, you, each of them misses a lot of the emotional experience, and I, uh, I think you represent more of it in the, in the end-of-day reports than just... You know, you can't beat people a hundred times in one day. They run from your study screaming. <laughs> so you might beat them five times, and you know, who knows if those five moments are representative? Can you do you quantify emotions? You talk about a stronger emotion and a, and a milder yeah. emotion, and yeah. I, I mean, I can understand that intuitively. Right. Birth of a child is obviously a very intense emotion, right. and, and uh, getting a bag of candy. Yeah, can't really compare unless yeah. it's really good candy. Um, did you <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, do, is there a way that you can you can uh, quantify this? Uh, well, you know, within, I, can't, I can't really imagine it. That's yeah. all. I'm, I'm, it's not it's not a perfect uh, quantification. I mean, people's uh, frame of reference is their own personal frame of right, reference. Right. 
And so um, sometimes people will use a scale that's anchored with the greatest amount in my entire life <laughs> versus you know just a little bit or none. Uh, and we, uh, we tend not to use the greatest amount in your entire life anymore because then people just avoid that completely and are just working with this small part of a scale. Right. We use like a one to a zero to four scale right. from, from none to a great deal or very intense depending on whether we're trying to get um, frequency or intensity. But I'm, I'm looking more, uh, I guess what I have in mind is sort of a, a James Bond type polygraph test, yeah. you know, when yeah. somebody's able to say, ah, oh, I can see you're very excited because they've hooked me up to some yeah, contraption yeah. and my pupils are dilated. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, this, this sort of thing. Is there a way very crudely uh, yeah. that 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 one can say I can see this person is you know, my pulse is racing or whatever. Yeah, yeah, there are yeah. some there's yeah. some sort of objective physiological changes that enable me to quantify this as a you know a, a, I don't know a seven on the emotion yeah. scale. Yeah, <laughs> you know there's um, uh, there's a great wish for there to be some physiological measure that would you know we can either put on your brain or measure right. in a polygraph that right. is is the emotion there is no such thing there isn't for negative emotions there isn't for positive emotions you right. can't um we know now that this reductionist approach that just says you know what your body's doing tells you what an emotion is doing is is um you know it, it's it's ill-fitting because your body has many jobs you know, it's not just an emotion readout right. mood ring. <laughs> you know, it's digesting, it's helping you move from place to place. So there's no biological measure that's going to be kind of a one-to-one -one mapping with emotions. And that's why people's self-reports are priceless. Because um, that's a, consciousness is a great integrator. And, um, you know, obviously people have reasons um, sometimes that affect their ability or their willingness to report in a straightforward way what they're and If you have enough people and enough yeah. studies, that'll... that'll it's a, yeah, it's, there's, there's certainly noise yeah. in that measure, um, but uh, it's, it's one of the, the most effective measures, especially if you get it at a, at a fine temporal resolution. So there's, there's ways to improve the measurement. It's certainly not perfect, but it allows science to progress. And the, 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 how you know it's capturing something is that you know people's day-to-day -day emotion reports are predicting theoretically, um, theoretically forecast or hypothesized changes in cardiovascular function or changes in in gene expression in the immune system. So it's you know if it were all just people saying what oh they're just giving you the reports that you want to hear, well their hearts aren't going right. to change there, the way there they is function. something objective going on, but yeah. it's certainly not a one-to-one -one map. That yes, you can pick out exactly, exactly. Um, so this brings me up to this, um, this effect that I understand exists, and I want you to tell me more about it. Um, I know that uh, if I'm under a lot of stress or if I'm really angry, there's a deleterious effect on my body mm -hmm. if I do this all the time anyway. Yeah. Um, the, the, this is not just uh, mumbo-jumbo that, they're, that right. if, I'm, if I'm somebody with, uh, that gets angry all the time, this has manifestations. Yeah. That, physically, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that are not in my best interest. Right. Um, and my understanding is that, that you've done studies and, been, uh, and illustrated that there is a possibility of, to some extent, redressing or reversing some of this deleterious effect, yeah. this undoing uh, right. by, by submitting oneself to positive emotions. So that just as there are negative effects on the body due to prolonged um, 
and, and maybe deliberately high or not deliberately, that's not the right word, but the, due, due to prolonged, yeah. uh, egregiously high uh, uh, negative emotions, uh -huh. um, one can remedy that to some extent, uh -huh. or one can go in the direction of uh -huh. remedying that by, by submitting people, right. having people experience positive emotions. Right. So, uh, so it took me a long time to get that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably gonna have to just cut it all anyway. But uh, uh -huh. <laughs> tell me, tell me, tell me about the undoing effect, yeah. and, and and tell me if I'm completely off base. Or not. No, no. Um, the, this was actually the first finding that I had um, on what positive emotions might be um, capable of doing. That. Uh, kind of served as uh, the kernel that then led to the development of the broaden and build theory. And um, this came from an idea of one of my other former mentors, Bob Levinson, who is uh, well known for his work on um, kind of discovering what the, the bodily signatures are of different emotions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and in doing that early work, he had found like, oh, sadness seems to have one particular you know, autonomic signature, fear another, anger another. And in that work, it looks like positive emotions have none. They don't have a signature. They're not showing, they're not registering in, in peripheral physiology. Um, but he, uh, in, in an early chapter, said, well, maybe that's because we're looking in the wrong time and place. Maybe it's, they don't look like they have a signature if we compare it to a neutral baseline. But if we start out when people are anxious or freaked out, <laughs> then maybe positive emotions, um, in a way, the way I phrase it, they don't quite do anything to the cardiovascular system, but they can undo uh, uh, activation in that system. So in a way, positive emotions function as like a reset button. Right. Um, uh, that kind of bring us back down to our, our baseline calm uh, uh, levels. And so um, uh, we tested that in a number of different ways and it looks to be the case that um, uh, positive emotions, if, if you are uh, experiencing a negative emotion that is no longer useful, and so it's kind of lingering on past its usefulness. The only mammoth has left the building. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then um, if you have the choice to just continue to ruminate about that woolly mammoth, focus on something neutral or focus on something positive, the, the thing that's going to get you to reset the fastest is focusing on something positive. So that's the undoing effect of positive emotions, which I think now is you know at, at um, uh, what... I used to think right when we published that work was that, or when we first discovered it, that you know perhaps that was the function of positive emotions is to be these undoers of our negative emotion, you know, excessive negative emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but I now, you know, when I when I tried to pull together, you know, uh, a proper evolutionary argument on on what positive emotions are good for, I came to the conclusion that that's a byproduct of this broadening and building effect right. uh, more than the function itself. Because positive emotions uh, are states that we experience in many different contexts, not just in the context of you know, uh, negativity. Right. And so we need to make sense of you know, all the different kinds of, ex uh, you right. know, kind of ecological situations in which we experience them. And you can imagine from an evolutionary perspective that would only work if humans 
had this tendency to have a surfeit of negative emotions. So right. you could say, well, then it would be useful to have this cleansing effect. Right. And that was the only thing it would do. Right. But that's, as I understand it, not actually the case. Most people don't have too many, you know, they're not constantly thinking about woolly mammoths when woolly yeah. mammoths aren't actually there. Right. Um, that, that that's just operating more or less right. as it should operate. Right. And, and, and the question is, well, there's this whole other stuff that right. we're, exactly. we're, we're doing that's exactly. important to us. Exactly. Um, so let's get to this question of, because um, so, we talk all this evolutionary stuff, but mm -hmm. um, bringing it down to a personal level again, um, if I'm somebody listening to this saying, okay, well, that all sounds pretty good to me. Maybe I can help myself mm -hmm. um, by, uh, by focusing more on, uh, on positive emotions. Yeah. Um, to the extent that maybe I should meditate or maybe yeah. I should try to have a different attitude as I go right. through life right. or, or whatever. Right. Maybe that will have some some physiological effects on me yeah. uh, as well as um, physiological in the big sense of the word, my whole body, yeah. including my brain. Right. Um, and so the claim is, yes, that's true. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have um, so much more capacity to um, uh, regulate our emotions than we often give ourselves credit for. A lot of times people think of emotions kind of like the weather. It just happens. <laughs> you know, but um, especially with the positive emotions, we have a lot of uh, choice about whether to kind of let them emerge and bloom in our day or to just, you know, blow right past them because we're too busy doing something else. <laughs> you know, so um, positive emotions are particularly uh, fragile. Again, they're not as, as potent or powerful as the negative emotions and, um, and, they're very, and the, the initial seeds of them, in a way, are easy to overlook. And so there's, uh, this is why um, uh, mind training through meditation can be uh, actually a really effective way, we've learned in our right. studies, to uh, help people learn how to self-generate positive self Self-generate positive emotions, not necessarily, uh, it's, um, and to recognize opportunities to, to do so. Um, so, and, so we've, in, in our studies, again, I started studying meditation, not to study meditation per se, but to test my theory. You know, I really wanted to just find out whether the build part of the broaden and build theory held water. And to do that, you have to um, essentially change people's emotional personality, <laughs> you know, change their daily diet of emotions and add more positive emotions in. And um, uh, I realized as, you know, uh, we had a few failed attempts at trying to, you know, create interventions that would raise people's positive emotions day in and day out. And, uh, you know, that was kind of humbling to realize, you know, per people's emotional personalities don't change very readily. Right. But then I, um, I happened to be in a, uh, this is kind of serendipitous, I happened to be in a faculty seminar on integrative medicine and was introduced to some uh, work on uh, what's called metta meditation or loving kindness meditation. And, you know, a huge light bulb went off for me. I was just like, I could use this to test my theory. And so um, I was emboldened by the fact that um, Richie Davidson and others had begun to do, you know, serious scientific work on mindfulness meditation and I thought okay we'll just swap in a different kind of meditation one that has um, a lot more um, focus on cultivating emotional states and um, 
uh, and not so much just you know pay attention to what is. It has a it has a specific aim or intention is to cultivate these warm and tender emotions. Um, and that's been really fruitful for my research lab. I mean, we found, yes, that people can increase their positive emotions, not in a, a whopping way. Again, it's just a, a subtle upward shift in everyday mild positive emotions. Um, that, that's, what, that's what people can create in their lives. And that subtle shift um, leads to changes in resilience, resourcefulness, cardiovascular health, immune health. I mean, so um, it doesn't have to be a whopping change. People aren't going from like the most dour person in the world to the happiest go lucky person in the world. It's just kind of like a slightly more upbeat, uplifted, cheerful version of oneself. And what seems to be especially important are feelings of positive connection with other people. Mm. Um, so what we've discovered is uh, even interventions that don't rely on meditation, that just ask people to reflect on their moments of connection on a daily basis, they lead to um, change, shifts upward in positive emotions and changes in cardiovascular health. Hmm. And, and tell me about the timelines involved, because I can imagine this is, you mentioned that this works on a different time scale, yeah. obviously, yeah. longer time scale, the whole yeah. idea of broadening and right. all the rest of this. Um, so that makes me think, well, there must be some kind of a threshold, I mean, to Two minutes is clearly not enough. Two years is probably more than yeah. plenty. So you, you probably yeah. have some sense as to how long you have to be doing this yeah. so that you start well, seeing effects. You know, we've always um, done these tests with a certain dosage of meditation. So we haven't done the like titration studies that's like, okay, what's the minimal right. and what's, you know, whatever. So I can tell you what we have tested, which is people are in a six-week uh, workshop on meditation where they attend a group class for one hour a week and then we ask them to do home practice every day people don't do it every day uh, three to five times a week so they end up investing between um, 60 and 90 minutes in this practice over the course of a week okay. um, which is a lot less than a lot of other meditation interventions which ask people to, to devote um, uh, oh, I don't know, an hour a day. So we're, our uh, the guided meditations we've used are really short, like 15 to 20 minutes. And, um, uh, and so we find that basically over a season, we see these changes over two and a half, three months. So, you know, from our time one to time two testing. So those are the characteristic time yeah. scales that, yeah. that you're dealing with. Do you have a, uh, asking you to speculate, mm -hmm. do you have a sense as to what a minimal... Uh, duration might be? Yeah. Well, you know, we find with these micro-interventions uh, that just reflecting on connection, right. we, f we see that they're not as powerful as, you know, uh, learning a meditation practice, but... Um, they're observable. They're observable. We see um, people are investing less than a minute a day thinking about, you know, what, are your, what were your three longest social interactions of today? How close did you feel? How attuned did you feel? Um, we find that, that asking yourself those questions about connection um, leads to emotional changes and cardiovascular changes. And one of my graduate students right now is doing work to figure out, what, what's, what are these questions doing? Are they changing the way people value their experience or are they kind of nudging their behavior in a different way? Like, if I'm going to have to answer that question every day, I better 
try to find some connection. <laughs> you know, so we're going to see if it's a behavioral shift or more of a, a cognitive shift. Right. Um, but so, so that's sort of where the state of the science is right now. But that's a practice that people who are, you know, uh, it's not everybody's into meditation. You know, it's not going to be something everyone's uh, interested in investing time in. But that's some, you know, reflecting on connection is something that we often don't do. We might do it on Thanksgiving or you know some key moments of the year. But if you take that up as a as a daily ritual, um, that that matters. Right, and 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 that also picks up on something you had said before, but that I hadn't um, myself picked up on. But this idea of of connection being very significant, yeah. Um, so that one starts thinking about a hierarchy to some extent of these these emotions, mm -hmm. and some are more significant than others. Mm -hmm. That one is right. It seems at the very yeah. top of the hierarchy. Yeah, that's what motivated me to write my second book, Love 2.0, was to really um, see that, uh, explore the idea that perhaps our experiences of shared positivity uh, are perhaps more influential in terms of our health than our, our solo experienced positivity. Not that those aren't um, important and lead right. to important developmental changes, but it could, there could be some real um, uh, hierarchy, if you will. Like these, they might be kind of like super nutrients. <laughs> you know, if all positive emotions are nutrients, these are the, these are the broccoli, <laughs> you know, in a, in a sense. And, and from a, a, a person on the street, common sense view, mm -hmm. um, this is not so surprising because love is something um, yeah. broadly defined that exists all over the place. Right. It certainly is something which drives human societies. Right. You talk right. to anybody on the street, they'll, right. they'll want to talk to you about, uh, well, if you ask them the right way, maybe, yeah. about <laughs> love yeah. and their, their personal experiences. So the fact that this is so incredibly prevalent yeah. in, our, in our society, yeah. in our species, um, is uh, it might be certainly linked naively to the fact that it has such significant effect right, on us. Right. Well, and but one of the things I spe I think is important to recognize is that currently our culture we tend to think of love as you know finding that soulmate, you know that one relationship, and uh, you know what's kind of sad about that is that you know from. For most adults, at least in the U.S., they either have never found that one person or have since lost that one person. So, you know, is that um, does that mean there's you know no love in right. their lives and no connection? And, no connection. Mm -hmm. and so, what I'm kind of what I'm doing is kind of lowering the bar on what love is and describing it as these micro moments of positive connection that we can have with people we know well, people we've never met before, and you know, I think that the value of the positive connections, the small positive connections we make in our community is that um, they may contribute to that sense of just, I'm safe in this, in this place. You know, so having lots of these micro-moment positive connections with people you don't even know may actually be just as powerful as the ones that you you know, that strengthen your most important bond relationships. Right. It's this whole argument about, about frequency and integrating yeah. something rather than necessarily intensity yes. of exactly. one or two experiences. Exactly. And, and what has the response been to Love 2.0 and this idea yeah. of these connections um, being singularly important to us and, yeah. and, that, and, the, and the physiological yeah. link 
Yeah. That's, that's the... Well, um, I think the reception has been good. I've got a number of colleagues who have been interested in, you know, it's like, oh, if that's true, well, I've got some data that might, you know, help mm. test this. And so it's, it's led to some neat projects. Um, uh, and it's inspired by my work with um, this meditation practice, loving kindness meditation. I right. think, you know, there's no accident that working on that <laughs> kind of led me to be uh, rethink uh, my ideas about, you know, how is love working? What is it? What, um, how is it affecting the body and health? And, but uh, that book in particular was written to kind of uh, frame the kind of work I'd like to do in the next 20 years, whereas my first book, Positivity, was kind of re, uh, re-describing right. you know, what I had done the first 20 years. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it was, uh, I was hoping that it would be a more generative uh, uh, framework, and so uh, we're beginning to see the initial evidence of that. So, so you're looking, uh, obviously scientifically, you're looking at how your colleagues respond, you're thinking about your research agenda. One of the interesting aspects of your work, unlike a cosmologist, say, uh -huh. or a fish biologist, uh -huh. is that it resonates with a lot of people who are not necessarily yeah. scientists and yeah. practitioners, and they say, yeah. oh, wait a minute, I know something about, um, I, I've Heard something about connection and yeah, <laughs> and and of course by definition because mm -hmm. you're talking about something common to humanity yeah. in, the, uh -huh. in the human condition, um, there's a natural link there, um, and I can imagine that that would be very stimulating for you yeah. and very uh, interesting and, and and exciting for you and very relevant. On the other hand, I could also imagine that it might sometimes be frustrating that you get yeah. put in the self-help section, that right. Barbara's going to teach right. you how to lead a fulfilled life, right. and, and uh, right. the 10-point plan to, uh, right, to right, changing right. your life around and right. all the rest of this sort of right. thing. Um, is, that, is, yeah. is that a common experience for it you? It is, um, and yet, you know, what a, what a um, great opportunity to be doing science in an area that people care about, you know, so rather than, I mean, so it's, um, it's a cool opportunity, yeah, but it does create some funny tensions in, in places, but, you know, uh, it, it feels um, enormously gratifying to have people have interest in these topics. Now, um, uh, there was a time when self-help books were written by anybody but scientists, and in the last 10 years or so, um, psychologists have realized, wait a minute, we have something to say about that. That's our job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe maybe we should have some offerings on that shelf too. So I'm, you know, I'm not embarrassed to be in the self-help aisle. I actually think it's important that there be some evidence-based work right. there. Um, but for people who, um, you know, aren't really uh, reading the fine details, they'll just see it as, yeah, another self-help book, you know, so... Um, in that sense, you know, I've, both of my books are written like with a part one and a part two. Part one is the science, part two is the, okay, if that's true, what do I do? Right. Um, um, part of things. And so, you know, they, you know, pe people can read them and kind of, you know, for what matters to them, you know, I hope I can get people to be interested in the really cool stuff in the front part of the book that's uh, about the science. Right. But, I, you know, some people are interested more in, okay, well, I, I buy that. What do I do? And, of course, it's a happy combination because, as a scientist, it could have been the case, logically, that um, positive emotions could, could have been disadvantageous. They right. could have been horrible things. They could have been, one, one could imagine 
at least logically, yeah, yeah. Um, that the sorts of things that people might like to hear right. uh, are, are not actually what's going on scientifically. Right. So that wasn't what formed your scientific judgment or what right. formed your scientific opinion. It just so happens that we've come to a right. conclusion in this area where we have this happy overlap where doing what, um, what makes us feel good and what in fact we should be doing more of right. in moderation in the right. right way as you describe is right. actually advantageous. It's yeah. good for us. So, yeah. so if that's the case, then I would argue that you even have a, a moral obligation yeah. to tell people about it. Well, that's kind of what motivated my first book. I felt like, you know, this is not just science anymore. This is a little bit about life and how to live it. And people, people should know, you know, it's, it did feel like a, um, uh, a calling to, you know, I never would have imagined that I would write for a general audience. And, you know, when I, you know, envisioned my career early on, it, wasn't on the list of things that I would do, but it did feel like, you know, I find this incredibly useful to know this. Other people might too, so let's, um, and, and it's just a, it's also a very different kind of writing than writing empirical articles, sure. and I, I, I found that enjoyable too, so um, that was a, a neat, it's a, I see it as an extension of my teaching mission, so I'm not just teaching students in my own university, I'm also teaching you know, uh, anybody who's interested um, can can kind of learn through that way. And yet, um, you know, I just, there's one caution to what you're saying, though, too, is that um, uh, just because positive emotions have these um, benefits for us in terms of building our resources, helping us become, you know, better versions of ourselves, doesn't mean that our attempts to self-generate them are not going to backfire. You know, because I think a lot of people um, maybe over, uh, I, I, I describe it in Love 2.0 as like, that. well, there's the authentic positive emotions or genuine positive emotions, and then there's the wishful thinking positive emotions, which is, no, I'm feeling fine. No, I'm great. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, that's kind of staying up here in the head in terms of words you say to other people, words you say to yourself. It even can be, you know, pretty locked in as self-deception. Hmm. Um, but the key to seeing the difference between these kind of um, forced smile versions of positivity and the genuine article is, is you know, seeing how much they're kind of uh, filtering down into the body, into the ways you carry yourself, into the, the um, your emotional calmness, into your ready, ready social connection, you know, so. And normal people can see this? I mean, non-scientists are able to determine that? Can you? Uh, can can you as a as a as a woman on the street, not you, but yeah. can a can a, woman, yeah. can a woman on the street be able to self-diagnose herself and say, "Gosh, I thought I was making myself, I thought I was self-generating yeah. these things properly, but in fact, I wasn't." Yeah, I think you can to some degree if you're willing to look in the in the right places. You know, it's like, oh, does does the day feel easier? <laughs> does do I feel more capable? Or do I feel do I feel like I'm growing in resilience? Oh no, I'm feeling really brittle. <laughs> you know, so, and and also in terms of um, registering uh, the sincerity of other people's expressions of positivity, we're really good at that if we make eye contact. Mm. If we don't make eye contact with other people, research shows we're actually um, pretty cut off from that gut wisdom that tells us whether somebody's, you know, um, just telling a story. Why, why is that? What is it about eye contact? Well, there's, um, there's this great work by social psychologist Paula Niedenthal on what she calls the simulation of smiles model that uh, when we make eye contact, we um, 
uh, it immediately and automatically begin to mimic that facial expression. And as we mimic that facial expression, we have kind of a neural mimicry going on as well. And that can, can inform your gut onto what, what that smile might mean. There's, I mean, there's not just one kind of smile. There's kind of the, I'm enjoying my chocolate, totally oblivious to you smile. There's the, you know, we're sharing an experience smile. There's a kind of a gloating smile, I'm better than you, <laughs> you know. And so to be able to right. disambiguate all those different kinds of smiles, if you don't make eye contact, you're not good at that. But if you do make eye contact, you're better at seeing all those subtle differences. And so um, uh, other people are actually really good um, uh, mirrors for us. And, you know, so when, if you think you're being positive, but you're not drawing other people in and seeing positivity on their faces, then it's, and again, it's probably not the real. That's a sign right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's subtle because our culture so much, you know, uh, it says, is, uh, especially American culture, is very much like, be happy, you know, don't cause problems, all good, <laughs> you know, and positive emotions are not meant to be a permanent veneer, you know, their responses to, I mean, all emotions are adaptive to the extent that they fit the situation, and when, um, when they don't fit the situation, then they can, you know, um, like if it's, it's kind of positive emotions or a smile is put on like a mask, it's not going to be effective. Mm -hmm. so, so it's trickier than, than it seems like, oh, this happy uh, uh, overlap between what the science says and what works for people. Well, in lives. principle, but I mean, the, the, question, uh, the, the basic idea is that it's, as I understand it, um, it, it it's all good in the yeah. sense that, <laughs> yeah. that, that positive emotions have, a, have, a, have, a, have positive ramifications. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there's this longer-term the right investment, and, right? Yeah. All that. Yeah. Um, whereas I'm just saying, logically, it could have been the, yeah, the, the other way around. Um, which actually leads me. What you were just saying now leads me to uh, another question, which is: I haven't known you longer than an hour or <laughs> so, uh, and I don't pretend to to have known you, but you seem to be somebody who is completely comfortable in your own skin yeah. um, and you seem to have a reasonably good handle on yeah. your emotions. I'm wondering if all of this research has changed you oh, personally. Definitely, definitely. I mean, like I was mentioning earlier, I, um, I didn't have much of an emotional education in, uh, in my youth at all. And um, uh, I think there was a stretch where, you know, I'm totally fascinated by the science, kind of drawn into it. Um, and at the same time, because of my love of science, I was uh, well over the edge in becoming a workaholic, you know, um, by my late 30s, you know, tenure seeking, those things in academia <laughs> get you to uh, overdo it. And the irony of it kind of sunk in. It's like, here I'm studying flourishing mental health. <laughs> and, I'm not sure know, I'm flourishing. I'm not sure I'm flourishing. And, you know, I'm not sure my marriage is going to last if I keep on this uh, path. And so, you know, I could really take lessons from my own work. It's like, oh, okay, actually, I think if that's true, especially if flourishing people have this higher ratio of positive to negative emotions, then working 14-hour days and just um, being in isolation isn't, that's not for, that's not going to 
uh, lead to good places. There you go. There's your so, scientific rational side to you coming yeah, to the floor. Exactly. So um, uh, I was really lucky that, you know, what pulled me back from the edge was, you know, the, the very work that was piling up on my desk. So I feel like I'm the, I'm the first student of this work in terms of it um, making a difference in my life. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm really lucky in that way. And when you talk about you didn't receive the best education in terms of positive emotions, um, that makes me wonder for your own children yeah. as a prescriptive, uh, as a prescription, do you consciously say, I should be doing this or I should be doing that vis-a-vis -vis emotional balance or, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or areas related to your yeah. work? Yeah, I think it's made me a better parent, too, because especially, you know, when you have really young kids and you find yourself saying, no, 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 all the time, like, don't do that, don't do that. I mean, just even having the awareness is like, oh, you know what, I should say yes sometimes. <laughs> you know, I should say, hey, yeah, let's go make cookies or go do you know, some silly thing they want to do instead of always just being the no person. So, you know, that's helped me to, to try to keep the right balance and um, try to create the family rituals that keep kind of daily fun stuff uh, on the kind of part of our daily routines and seasonal routines. So, yeah, I think about that a lot. And I, um, I have, my oldest is now in high school and he's, uh, uh, very much like me in terms of just being, you know, as I was at that time, very scholarly focused. And, you know, he's taking all these honors classes. He comes home and he does five hours of homework. And so I sit down and say, you know, that's all great. I'm glad you're a great scholar, but what are you doing for fun? <laughs> you know, and he's like, what? Does he like, listen no. to you? Not, not enough, that? you know. So I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I, I have to work on that in terms of, you know, getting to take it seriously. He likes to discount, you know, like, I've talked to them so much about, um, you know, upward spirals of growth, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, upward spiral, mom, I get it." <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I mean, I think he he takes it to heart a little bit, but he's he's got to find his own areas of passion. So I'm just trying to support that. Sure. Anything I missed? Anything you want to talk about that we haven't got ah, to? Ah, I think you've done a good job of kind of going through all the uh, different areas. I think that. Uh, we covered how positive emotions make people more resilient, change the way the brain works, help us grow and change. So um, the, the work that I'm doing right now in my research lab is really how to use what we know about positive emotions to uh, support healthy lifestyle change. Um, to, uh, one of the things that we're testing is uh, kind of a an offshoot of the broaden and build theory is what I'm calling this upward spiral theory of lifestyle change that our positive emotions change us um, biologically in ways that turn up the volume on the positive emotion system so that uh, healthy behaviors become even more rewarding and it kind of knits us to our health and wellness behaviors instead of um, getting us to uh, the typical way that people try to make a change in their life in terms of health is to like I should do this that kind of use top-down willpower right, right. and so I'm trying to, to use what we know about uh, the emotion system to create these this non-conscious pull hmm. towards so to uh, leverage, health behaviors. Leverage yeah, exactly. So that's what um, all of our current work is on uh, testing this um, upward spiral theory and seeing if 
if we increase your positive emotions through one means, say through learning how to meditate, does that actually make other health behaviors, like being physically active, eating fruits and vegetables, more affectively rewarding? Um, and so you kind of get drawn and pulled into um, taking care of the body in other ways. I wanted to ask you one thing. Uh, you mentioned this meditation, this um, loving kindness meditation. Uh -huh. um, and you called it meta-meditation at uh -huh. some point, which made me think about meditating about meditating. Uh, <laughs> That's a different meta. So, it's yeah. two T's. So I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to understand what this thing is. Uh -huh. um, so, so can you tell me a little bit about what, yeah. what loving-kindness meditation yeah. is and how it's different from other meditation? And, and be, be very uh, general, because yeah, I know sure. nothing about meditation at sure. all, period. Sure. Um, um, it is a, an ancient... Um, Buddhist practice um, can be it can be practiced in a totally secular way, um, and it's kind of uh, hinges on this sort of drumbeat of these phrases that you repeat to yourself. So instead of some forms of meditation, mindfulness meditation, have you just keep your attention focused on the breath and keep returning to the breath. In this practice, you keep returning to these. Um, phrases, which are essentially wishes for another person's well-being or your own well-being. But um, the classic phrases go something like, you know, may you feel safe, may you feel happy, may you feel healthy, may you live with ease. And it's not so much like there's magic in those words, but um, a repetition of those phrases with the intention of uh, creating that kind of warm, tender, compassionate feeling towards the self and others is, is what seems to drive it. Um, if people are interested in that, uh, the website that goes along with Love 2.0 is PositivityResonance.com, mm -hmm. and that includes some uh, short guided meditations that people can sample and, sure. and try it out and you know, use that as a base for learning more. Cool. So this is doubtless in that information, but since I have you here, I'm just going to ask, how long do you do it for when you... Uh, we tend to, uh, the guided meditations that we use in our research that are on this website uh, that goes with my book are about 15, you know, maybe 20 minutes. Okay. Um, and uh, we found that if people practice that three to four times a week, that seems to be all that, it that you need to do to have your heart rhythms take note, have your immune system take note. So uh, it's not a huge investment. I think it's a well, it's a, uh, it keeps me uh, w continuing to come back to the practice myself, you know, is to just like, oh yeah, that research <laughs> says this makes a difference. <laughs> I should do this too. So. Well, I, I, I didn't want to ask you because it seems fairly obvious that you should be, based on what you were just saying, yeah. you should be, you should be actually doing it if yeah. you notice the, yeah. the, the difference. But, uh, yeah. I tried. I, I try to do everything that I ask our research participants to do, and so I've learned meditation kind of alongside our first right. research participants because I thought, well, you know, I can't be studying this if I don't know what it is. Right. Um, so uh, that's how I I started uh, getting interested in meditation is again through the science. Right. So the science science can save your life. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> save mine. <laughs> that's so. great. Well, Barbara, thank you. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Thank oh, you yeah, very much. It's been fun. Thanks. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Social Psychology, along with separate discussions with Roy Baumeister, Carol Dweck, Yanko Tipsarevich, and Philip Zimbardo. 
Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. While those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. 